you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where a controversial comic definitely deserves a controversial opening song. Welcome to episode 154 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Eagle, and I always do this every Friday, and I bring you a couple of comics from the Green Lantern run that started with cover date June 1990 and ended with cover date November 2004. Plus, I put a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And this time out, we've got an incredibly special book. This is issue... 154, like I said, of Green Lantern, which is the first part of the hate crime storyline, which deals with a very touchy subject of hate crimes, personally against Terry Berg. Uh, you may know a little bit about this. You may know what happens to this story, and uh, it's going to be a touchy subject that we're going to cover. Plus, we're also going to be covering the second part of the Green Lantern prestige format book, Evil's Might, and to come along with me to talk about this very important issue and Green Lantern Needful's Might is one of my best friends on the internet, a podcaster extraordinaire, the consummate man about town. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. Thomas DJ. Hey, Thomas. Hey, now usually I would make some sort of comedic reference to something I was doing right this second, but it doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> no, no, this is going to be... This is going to be a very heavy episode, especially talking about this issue. Right. Well, um, it's, it's one of the keystone issues of uh, Judd Winnick's run. Mm-hmm. And I think this was, I don't know if he was building up to this, but he was definitely, he was laying seeds of uh, Terry coming out that we saw in issue 137 mm-hmm. and the development of his character and the development of his relationship with this character, David. That, that led to all this. And this is really an important issue. And I'm glad that I'm going to be able to get to talk to you about this uh, today. This is going to be a mm-hmm. really good time. And this was, as I think I, I mentioned to you off air, this was an issue that, at least in New York, got some press. Mm-hmm. I think I think it even got some nationally. I did a little looking around. And mm-hmm. I, I know this one got some awards from, like, uh, GLAAD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was even... Talked. I don't know whether it was nominated, but I think it may be may have been nominated for some Eisner awards. So, it's an important issue. It deals with a really touchy subject, and we will be getting to it uh, right after we take these uh, podcast promo breaks. So, after the promos, we'll be back with issue one fifty four of Green Lantern. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? 
we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? Humans make illogical decisions. Distract sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found the spot. I'm talking the spot. You understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire in the sky. Star Trek Monthly Monday, covering every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order, on the second Monday of every month, at twotruefreaks.com. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming, let's see, it's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes, uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. <laughs> Prentice Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Prentice Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. And we're back. So we're going to go ahead and jump straight on in to coverage of Green Lantern number 154. This one was cover dated November 2002 and released on September 11th of 2002. The cover price was 225 US and 375 Canada, and the title was Hate Crime Part 1. The writer, Judd Winnick, penciler Dale Eaglesham, anchor Rodney Ramos, colorist was Moose Bowman, letter was Kurt Hathaway, assistant editor was Morgan... Dontonaville, and the editor was Bob Schrag. The cover this time, again, was done by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Sitting in the intensive care unit, David, boyfriend of Terry Berg, relates the tale that led him to being here. He and Terry were leaving a dance club after a night of partying, when, without any thought of what might occur, David gave Terry an innocent kiss. A simple kiss for someone he loved. This kiss was witnessed by some passing thugs who started whistling at the couple, then started following them, calling them faggots. Unable to get a cell signal to call for help, David and Terry started to run, not even looking back, but they knew that they were being followed. Hoping if they split up, the thugs would stop chasing them, the couple parts ways, but the plan backfires, and the pursuers take off after Terry. After a few minutes, David circles back to find Terry, and what he finds is nearly indescribable. The attackers broke his arm and both his legs, one in three places. They crushed his left hand, broke four ribs, and collapsed his lung. They fractured his skull, blowing out his left eye and requiring a stent to be placed in his skull to relieve pressure to the brain. He's in a coma, and he might never recover. Tearing up, David falls into the arms of a consoling Jenny Lynn Hayden, saying that Terry's parents would even let the young man enter the room to see him. Angered, Kyle Rayner leaves the waiting room and watches Terry's parents speak with the surgeon about Terry's prognosis. But before Kyle can approach the Bergs, Detective Andy Douchebag hits Kyle up for some info about the battered boy. Kyle balks at the idea that Terry might have been on drugs or might have hit on the perpetrators, but the detective says he just wants to get all sides of the story before he goes after the attackers. But before more questioning commence, Andy is called away by another detective and Kyle sets up a brain construct bug to listen in on the conversation. The detectives say that they caught one of the perps, and he's being held on Rikers Island. 
but he's not giving up any info on his accomplices. However, Green Lantern thinks that he can get some of that info. Entering Daniel Hirsch's cell at Rikers, Green Lantern sparks up a friendly chat with the prisoner. And by friendly chat, I mean pins him to the wall and snaps his wrists. Since TL soundproofed the room and created a construct hologram of her sleeping, he could do this all night long. But luckily for Danny Boy, GL doesn't have to as he gets as he gets the 5-0 on his accomplices and halts their escape, dismantling their car in the process. Telling the duo that he knows what they did, he allows them the opportunity to try and get away before he beats the ever-loving shit out of them, eventually taking them into custody. Just as sir, Cal heads back to Terry's room at the hospital and tells his young friend that he did his part. Now he has to do his... And just wake up. Wow. Yeah. And it doesn't... It also... The fact that this book also came out on the one-year anniversary of September 11th Mm-hmm. Doesn't you know, also sort of adds to the the sort of power and the drama behind this book? Mm-hmm. This is <laughs> it's pretty grim. It's mm-hmm. but I think that this was meant to be just like no fun zone at mm-hmm. all. Um, it was meant to be grim. It was something that I think that uh, Winnick wanted to just rub our faces in. Mm-hmm. That this sort of thing happens, and in some ways, you can kind of think that that might be how Winnick plays his stories. And you know, I mm-hmm. knowing pl- Winnick's political beliefs, this is kind of the way that he would approach it. That in order to get his point across about the way homosexuals are being treated, he had to do a story that was this dramatic and this shocking Mm -hmm. to get people to stand up and take notice about it. And it would not have worked if he hadn't spent all this time building Terry up. Yes. The the fact that Terry is a fleshed-out character and that you care about him makes him... makes what happened to him have more impact than, say, specifically... Going back to Kyle's origin, Alex, mm-hmm. we really didn't get that much buildup of her as a character, so we felt bad for Kyle when Alex died, but when we see this happening to Terry Berg, that we've had him for almost 15, you know, we've seen him around in the book for over a year and a half, it it means something more to see something this horrific happen to him. Um... I do have to say that Kyle's turn at the end, him going after the criminals, is satisfying in a way for the readers because we want to see these people who did this horrible thing, you know, get theirs. But it also kind of makes me feel that Kyle is stepping out of who he is. He's letting, you know, I don't want to sound all Star Wars and, you know, you're letting anger and hate take over, but he's he's not that kind of person you know the scene of him in the jail cell is more akin to something i would see batman doing right and i mean i think it's also reflected by the fact that we see him almost entirely during these two sequences in shadow Mm -hmm. which on one hand we don't have to look at the freaking dog collar uniform (laughs) go away freaking Jim Lee dog collar uniform. Yes, I I know your feelings on that. Well, do you want to go ahead and uh, kind of go through the book? Okay, let's... Do you want to start with the cover? Which is in your face. Yeah, it doesn't leave, uh, doesn't leave much to the imagination. That's a pretty brutal cover. It doesn't look all that much like Terry, but I think that kind of works simply because you can't tell who this is, and it gives emphasis to how brutal this person has been beaten up. If you could have told that it was Terry, that might have that might have made it resonate a little bit more for you. But the fact that this person is so messed up that uh you can't tell who he is just just sells the idea that these people have brutally beaten this person. Mm-hmm. And and there is really no there's no 
there is nothing telegraphed on the front cover to say why this person is beaten up like this. You don't know until you get into the book that this was a hate crime of people who are homophobic going against uh, a, a young gay boy, which mm-hmm. which makes it all the more horrible when you open up the book and start reading it. Uh, I'm not too keen on Jim Lee's art. It's yeah. kind of scratchy at places. I would have rather seen Eagle Sham do something like this, mm-hmm. but he gets the he gets the violence across. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Moving into the book, page two, panel one. The depiction of the kiss is drawn very ambiguous. Terry mm-hmm. Terry looks kind of feminine, and it's not until yeah. later on the page that you realize that this is. You know, two guys kissing. So, mm-hmm. and and I, I'm also glad that Judd Winnick doesn't pull any punches, and he allows these guys. And I think it also it, it makes the people. It gives you a reason to hate these people that they use the the epithet of calling Terry and David faggots. And I'm right. I, I hate using that word, but it's in the book, and I don't want to. I don't want to tiptoe around it. He uses that word to emphasize how horrible and hateful these people are. And, and they could have just done like F, you know, dingbat, dingbat, dingbat. Yeah. I mean, they use it later on and they use, you know, letter dingbat, dingbat, dingbat later on in the book mm-hmm. when he's talking to uh, Detective Douchebag. Yeah. You know, Rock you, McLarge or whatever his mm-hmm. name is. <laughs> Um, but I think it was important here that you, you got the full frontal, so to speak. Yeah. That, of the language. Yeah. You, you get the realization that these people are actually angered by the fact that these, that this gay couple is out there doing nothing, nothing wrong. They're just two people showing affection and because these people are close-minded and hateful, they've decided to chase them down and brutally assault them. My next note's not really until we get to the uh, the splash page where we've got the title. Yeah. With uh with Terry in the bed, and I I, I like the juxtaposition of the sort of uh, text piece that gives the the sort of. Uh, medical or the the medical examination right. of what's going on versus Kyle explaining it to you in in layman's terms and they 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 match up really well and it's good that Kyle gave you this explanation because if you read some of the stuff you you might be able to figure out what's going on but Kyle right. gives it to you in a realistic way you know plain speak they <clears throat> they they knocked out his left eye they broke his arm broke both of his legs Cracked four ribs, punctured lung. I mean, it's awful. And and Eagle Sham does a good job of depicting the brutality that occurred to Terry. It's it, it it's great that they don't pull punches in this book. It's not. Mm-hmm. And and I know that we've commented a lot of times in modern comics how we don't like the graphic nature of them. But, but this is the exception. This issue is the exception mm-hmm. in Winnick's run. Now, Winnick, we learn later on when he starts doing other work, that he starts reveling in grotesquity. Uh, I had to stop reading his Green Hour run because it was just so full of just depravity. Hmm. Um, but here, because so this is, this issue stands out for its brutality, it has more impact. I think that's the thing. There's nothing wrong with having, uh, gruesomeness as long as there, it, it comes back to the whole contrast. You can't have gruesomeness without some light. You can't have darkness. Mm-hmm. And once we get into like the new DC, the, the infinite crisis age, it's all darkness all the time. Yes, and uh, and I think I think you hit it on the head. That's why this issue has such impact because up until this, the the conflicts have been very superhero esque. Mm-hmm. There's been 
grave uh, consequences, but it's never been hyper-violent. Uh, Plus, you even get some lighthearted issues like, you know, Kyle going to his to his reunion. Yeah, in fact, that's what we had we had last issue, where it was basically, mm-hmm. you know, just the comic book adaptation of Gross Point Blank, <laughs> which was which was amusing, which which makes for a nice contrast that you had that sort of light issue that had its moments. It had him talking with his mom about uh, meeting with his father and all that, but it, it was a lighthearted issue, and then you follow it up with this. And it it gives you that balance in the comic. That's kind of what you want. Mm-hmm. On the next page, page seven, panel one, I got to wonder where Wolverine showed up in this book. <laughs> I, well, I think the only reason they gave him the stubble is to differentiate him from David. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, one of the critiques I have of Englesham in this issue is that he some of the the characters don't really look distinctive. Yeah, that's the thing that I've noticed about Englesham. His his faces for males don't really have all that much detail. Whenever he's drawing Jenny or even Kyle's mom in the last issue, they looked very distinct. But mm-hmm. most of his male facial issue male faces had a pretty similar look to them. So yeah, I was just like. That doesn't look all that much like Kyle, but you no, know, I guess we can give it up for that. Um, I really don't have that much uh, more. Let's see. I'm uh, you know when when Kyle talks to the investigator, like I said, what, I called Dick him McLarge, yeah, Dick know. McLarge, huge, yeah, um, slab I, hard cheese, <laughs> you know, Bob squat thrust. We could go through all of those, couldn't we? Yes, we could. Ah, uh, thank you, Space Mutiny. Um, <laughs> we've got to lighten it a little. Uh, I'm wondering if he was put in here specifically to be the sort of the the cop who really doesn't care about what's this, what's going on. If this is Winnick letting his politics kind of run, because it could be that this police officer is just trying to check out all the angles. But I think Winnick's putting in here as one of those people's like, well, I dismiss everything. And it's obviously the cop is somewhat hom- homophobic as well. And I, if that's the case, I, don't, not, I didn't get that feeling. I didn't get that feeling. I got the feeling that this was somebody who had to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you got yeah. that way. Cause I didn't want to see, you know, this cop just be a complete ass and be dismissive of what's going on because that seems to be a cheat when people are writing certain things that they're trying writing sort of issue type comics. They'll put someone in there who is a, a, a horrible stereotype, you know, the the bad cop who doesn't care about this issue that's trying to get a point across. Yeah. And I'm glad that that you think that Winnick wasn't actually trying to do that. Yeah, no, no. If he had said he had used a uh a homophobic epithet that yeah. would be different, but mm-hmm. he's just going through any possibility. Yeah. Um. After that, uh, I just basically have some general notes about the about until the end of the issue. I um, mean, I'm just looking at page eleven. Just mm-hmm. that yeah. one that one picture with the whole like what looks like a tattoo on uh, Kyle's face. Hmm. Oh yeah, he's got the Rorschach tattoo on his face, yeah. basically. Yeah, he's this is this is quite a change for Kyle. And you understand that he has a personal right. he, he, this is very personal to him. This is This the is first, part of his second family. Yeah, this is this is essentially and we I mentioned this before, this is his second death of someone in his family or in his relationship since Alex that, that that's affected him. And He's taking it in a much different way, and the brutality that he inflicts on this guy in the uh, jail cell. Now, I'll admit it's very clever that he sets up a construct and you know soundproofs the cell so nothing can happen. But it, like I said, it smacks more of something that Batman would do rather than yeah. what Green Lantern would do. Oh, it's a Rorschach thing, actually. That's actually a more apt description That's of a more character. apt thing, because remember, in Watchmen, Rorschach is like breaking people's fingers mm-hmm. to get information. This is what Kyle's doing. Yeah, he's he's got this guy held upside down against the wall, snapping his wrist, and then squeezing 
the broken bones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty horrific, and he's he's reveling in it. I mean, he's not reveling in it, but you look on like page fifteen where he's yelling at the guy. He's obviously taking some amount of pleasure in it. And that even moves on to where he confronts the other two thugs. Throughout that fight sequence, I'm trying to look at it, it doesn't look like he uses a construct once when he's fighting those two. He's kicking them, punching them. The only time he uses the construct is when he smashes into the car. Yeah. Well, when he smashes the car at the end, at the end when he looks like he's going to punch the guy in the face with a ring construct blast and he punches Mm -hmm. into the wall. You know, uh, it's just showing that Kyle is taking this very viscerally and it's a, it's a big change for the character. And in some ways, I'm wondering if this is sort of maybe it's because of Alex that he's being so violent. I could buy that. That this is, that he figures this is what he couldn't have, he was not able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that because, because when Alex was taken from him, he, he wasn't able to finish off Major Force and he feels mm-hmm. that he can take it out on these guys. That he right. can, but you know, thankfully he doesn't cross the line, but there's a moment there where you think that he might. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain that he wouldn't have, but it is nice that you see him go to that edge, and it 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 makes the the story very interesting. But I'm thinking this is also kind of wish fulfillment on the part of the readers mm-hmm. who want to see this happen to these people, who want to see these people who are horrific people get punished for what they did, and. Mm, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult line to to skirt whether or not Kyle should have done something more or whether he just did the right amount. You know, it's like I said, the writing on this is really really well done, and I think Winnick approached this in a Although fantastic way. An argument could be made that he could have just scooped these two guys in a bubble and dropped them. Yeah, drop them in Rikers. Right. So the question is, has he gone too far? Because mm-hmm. you're basically talking about, you know, the equivalent of a nuclear bomb on your finger. Well, and he's he's mentioned that before. You know, he can, you know, even though he doesn't have the power of ion, he's still got, you know, incredible power. You know, and, and even more enhanced, and he's more in tune with it now. So if he wanted to take these people apart. You know, I know Hal has said many times that he could, you know, take people apart molecule by molecule and put them back together. If Kyle wanted to do that, I'm certain he could as well. So is he is he crossing the line? Yes. That's yeah. It's it's just really it's a really good story. Mm-hmm. Um and then we get the most unnaturally small waste in the history. Yes, I'm still looking at that. Eagle Sham, he does a great job on Jenny's facial features, but when mm-hmm. he draws her body type, she just, uh, that is way too skinny. I'm looking at that page 22, that third mm-hmm. panel there. That's just uncomfortable. It's like she's wearing a corset, for goodness sakes. And, and it's not. She's wearing, she's wearing, uh, like a midriff, bearing cutoff shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tight, but it's not supposed to be, you know, compressing her abdomen into a singularity. <laughs> uh. Belly black hole. Uh. <laughs> that's that's the latest sci-fi movie, right after Sharknado <laughs> 3. Um I know you don't I know you've got the digital copy so you don't have any ads in this. Are you yeah. are you finished off with this? Are we, yeah, are I, think, I mean, there's not a lot to say because yeah. it is such a, you know, usually we make jokes and 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 have a couple of laughs, but it is it, it's a pretty just nasty book because I think it's meant to be in your face. Mm-hmm. It's it's not supposed to be something that you're sitting like, oh look how that's happening, you know? No, it's supposed it's supposed to hit you as the the teens say in the fields, and it 
it definitely does. It's it doesn't pull any punches, and it will be interesting to see you know what happens after this and what happens with Terry, whether he recovers and everything. I I think he might, but like I said, I haven't read ahead. Well, remember, if I remember correctly, we're, we're coming to the end pretty soon. Yeah, Winnick only stays around for a little while longer, and I think in by like the one sixties. Mm-hmm. Your favorite writer uh, comes uh, back. Go away, Ben Rape. Uh, yeah. And take that dog collar uniform with you. <laughs> but but by the I end of the run. That. Can we just talk about that? I hate okay, that uniform. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll I let you rant. Freaking hate that uniform. It is so nineties. See, this is this is odd because I had Emily Middleton on a while yeah. back for 150, and she said that she actually enjoyed the dog collar uniform over Kyle's original '90s uniform. She didn't like. She didn't like the uh, sort of uh, white, you know, the big white. Strip I even on one hate side. the symbol. With the the simple lantern symbol with the, the oval the and the two tops. Symbol. Yeah, yeah. I I hate everything about that thing. The the, the stupid segmented sleeves. Mm-hmm. The straps everywhere. The freaking door. I hate that uniform so much. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I get, I get what he's trying to do. I get what, what Lee was trying to do, which is kind of update, cr- kind of like creating a modern day version of the classic Green Lantern uniform. Mm-hmm. But it fails. Yeah. It does have, it does have all those elements of Jim Lee that's just sort of excess that don't really. Mm-hmm work for Green Lantern. And I think it's because that the the original Silver Age design of the Green Lantern costume was was elegant. It was simple, mm. it was elegant, it was eye-catching, and it didn't need to be to have all these weird accoutrements on it. Right. It, it looks like it would take him about 20 minutes to get into that uniform. Yeah, well, thank goodness it's all a construct, so that helps. Yeah. Um, Why would you then create all the straps and the stuff? Uh, I'm sorry, Emily. It's I the 2000s. I don't know. I was going to say it's the 90s, but we can't say that anymore. Um, it's I'm Planet looking, Haney, Jake. <laughs> it's Planet Haney. Haney. I'm looking through the uh, ads here. There's nothing really standing out. There's the Tobacco is Wacko ad. Haney. There's Starburst. One of the interesting ones that they have here is an ad for the critic, for from the critically acclaimed creator of Buffy the Vampire Slater. Joss Whedon gave new blood to vampires. Now he turns his unique version to space. It's Firefly. And this is a very early ad for Firefly. It's got mm-hmm. a picture of uh, sort of two planets in the background and Nathan Fillion's face up there. Mm-hmm. But the ship, or I guess what the ship is supposed to look like, doesn't look anything like the cloud. It looks like it's supposed to be a Firefly. It looks like a bug with the uh, propulsion systems of it having lit up so obvious and the the font for the show looks very different as well so this was probably a very very early advertisement for firefly and we know how mm-hmm. you know how long firefly lasted and you know what yeah. what a popular show that was uh let's see anything else in here i think other hey guys than... please can we give it up firefly is not coming back guys it's not Nathan Fillion's gained about thirty pounds. Yes, he's he's okay with doing Castle now and doing voiceovers for the Green Lantern on on any of the various DC animated movies. So let's just—he's not going to come back for Firefly. The only other—I think the only way that that Firefly could come back right now is maybe as an animated, like an animated movie. Because everybody has changed so much since then. Oh, yeah. Well, and I know, uh, what's his name? Adam Baldwin mm-hmm. has kind of fallen out with people. I know there's been some controversy around him. He's gotten rather conservative, and I don't know whether 
you know, he, he would be able what to... What is it about character actors that they suddenly become lunatic right-wingers? I don't know. No, no, no offense, of course. You no, know. no, no, no. I, yeah. I understand they're, you know, well, but there are also people, there are the, as, as many Adam Lunatic Baldwin's... Lunatic left-wingers, yes. As many as Adam Baldwin's out there, there are Sean Penn's and, you know, mm-hmm. Adam, you know Alec Baldwin's, which... And is, I don't I don't embrace them, just like you don't embrace the Adam Baldwin's and Michael uh, Moriarty's of the world. No. Either. No, the you know, it's just they they get ridiculous sometimes. See, people, it is possible for two people of two differing political viewpoints to be bestest of friends, mm-hmm. and to and to be able to come together and have intelligent conversations about politics and not end up yelling at each other and hating each other. It's very simple. It's called the more respect. you know. Do, 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 do. <laughs> And speaking of the, well, speaking kind of of, uh, of a PSA thing, they've got uh, the only other ad that they have at the back of the book is uh, for the September ad, September 11th ad, and it's got mm. the, uh, I think it's an Alex Ross painting of uh, Superman and Crypto looking at the uh, the various uh, policemen and firefighters and rescue workers. Uh, it's it's a nice little thing, but uh, I figured I'll go ahead and read this. It's a note from the publisher. It says. The year that's passed since September 11, 2001, makes it no less vivid a memory, especially for those of us here in New York who literally breathed in the bitter dust. But permit us to share a few thoughts. First, our sympathy to those whose lives were changed, the victims, their families, the heroes, and all those who face these difficult times in America and across the world with quiet dignity. Second, our thanks to the many friends who expressed concern for us and offered their support. Comics have always been a great community and surely never greater in the face of this tragedy. Third, a special acknowledgement to two of DC's unsung heroes. Stuart Shrek, a sales rep who ensures that shops get comics to you and who continued his efforts at the sad and untimely tragic search for his brother-in-law's sister who was lost in the World Trade Center collapse. And Fred Ruiz, our veteran production manager, whose steady hand gets the comics ready for printing and who has been on national guard duty this past year away from us and from his family at Ground Zero and then securing other potential targets. Finally, we are honored to publish a special volume dedicated to 9-11 and through the generosity of the participating talent, businesses, and ultimately purchasers to have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the victims. It was the most rewarding moment of my personal editorial career, and I thank all of you. If you have not seen the book or would like enjoy seeing selections from the original artwork, I invite you to visit the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where it will be part of a magnificent exhibition from September 7th to October 26th. The book is still available in most of our regular retail outlets. We look back in sadness, but forward to rene- with renewed confidence in what good humanity is capable of, even in the face of the unspeakable. And this was written by Paul Levitz, executive right. vice president and publisher of DC Comics. And I just thought that was a nice little thing to have at the back of the book, especially since this one came out, you know, a year after the September 11th attacks. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it was still there was still like a big gaping wound in our city at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were just. Yeah, I, it was I literally just a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, now they still had the the Freedom Tower is up and running, and yes, so it is. It is. It is not. But I know they have a memorial there, and they have mm-hmm. things that which so. they charge an a, a unspeakably large amount of money to get into. See, that's I. And, which I, it's something like it's like twenty some odd dollars. Mm. See, Which to me is just, it's wrong. Yeah, I, I think here in Oklahoma City, we have a memorial as well for the Murrow building. Mm-hmm. It's, it's obviously not as extensive as what would happen, but I know it's relatively inexpensive. And I think, uh, sometimes they even have days that are free to the public. So yeah, that's disappointing that they've decided to try and, you know, if the money is going to, to charitable organizations or a majority of it's going to that. Maybe that's a good thing, but if it's just going to upkeep, then mm. now I've always been a person who believes that, who believe that we should never forget, Mm -hmm. but beyond a certain point, our, uh, continuing to evoke it just doesn't allow the wound to heal. Exactly. And I mean, the, the fact that every, Every 
uh, September 11th, every single television station is showing the, the reading of the victims kind of bothers me because it's just basically reminding us and, and in a negative way, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's, it's just unforgivable that this monument is out of the price range of some people who could learn from it. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things here that I know the uh, bombing memorial in Oklahoma City is it 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 is an educational experience. Mm-hmm. It, it tells you of what happened and what people did and what went on, and it gives you an idea of 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 the tragedy that happened mm-hmm. there. So uh, if it, it would be, it would make sense for them to allow it to be more accessible. Rather than mm-hmm. allow it to be a money making thing, I would think. Yeah, but but we're not. Uh, unfortunately, we're not civic leaders, and well, yet, and uh, nor do we really want to be either. But uh, well, speaking of civic leaders, oh yes, we're going to be talking <laughs> about civic leaders of the 1800s here in just a minute. <laughs> the uh, strange uh, world of Boss Tweed and the uh, Tammany Hall. People, uh, as we're going to be covering Green Lantern Evil's Might number two, right after we take this podcast promo break. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. And we are back to take a look at our second book this time out. It's Green Lantern, Evil's Might, number two. This one was also cover dated 2002 and released on September 25th of 2002 with a cover price of $5.95 in the U.S. The title was The Green Lantern's Light. The writers were Howard Chaikin and David Tishman, and the penciler was Marshall Rogers. The inker was John... Capillero, the letter was Bob Lappin, colorist was Chris Chuckery, and the editor was Andy Helfer. Our story opens as Green Lantern aids the downtrodden diggers of the New York subway system by creating a giant earth-moving machine to aid them. This, of course, angers the foreman of the project, but Green Lantern says that he was supposed to pay his men by the load, and he will pay up. Meanwhile, a jailed Alan Scott is getting stabbed in jail for his action at the Ferris party last issue, and as the guards arrive enough, in enough time to save him, but the thugs say it was just Alan trying to commit suicide as he's taken to the infirmary. We're treated to scenes of the subway workers mourning a cobrad, the Tammany bosses playing poker, and Carol Ferris getting a note to meet Kyle at the usual place. The suffragist socialite heads to the Chinese restaurant and meets the young sketch artist sketching an image of her. Nonplussed, Carol says she knows Kyle was the Green Lantern, and that her father and boss Tweed have a bounty on his head. Kyle tells her not to worry as the two head out with the intention of another date. At the New York graphic office, young Jimmy Mulroney is delivering the latest Rain or Shine political cartoon to Mr. Carson, while accidentally mentioning that the artist's name is Kyle. 
At the same time, Ed Ferris is making plans with Hal Jordan to do away the, with the Green Lantern, while Kyle is showing Carol his sketches for the Rain or Shine cartoon, something which gets the debutante all hot in her knickers. But while Kyle... There you go. While Kyle and Carol smooch, Inspector Jordan meets with the recovering Alan Scott to make him an offer. Him and the Bowery Greens are free to go, but now they work for him and Tammany. Oh, and he also needs to offer up the address of Kyle Wayne. Speaking of Rainer, we find him in his Green Lantern guise, bringing up a waiting pool for the underprivileged to cool off in. One of the tenants, Miss McCullough, offers Green Lantern some baked goods as thanks, saying that because of him, people around here have felt more confident, even standing up to the Bowery Greens like that hooligan Kyle Rayner. However, Green Lantern assures her that Rayner won't be making any more trouble around here. Meanwhile, in Kyle's apartment, Hal Jordan waits to confront the young man, while across town, Carol Ferris researches the ring, while Alan Scott mourns the loss of revenue because of the interference of the Green Lantern. Later that evening, as Kyle walks back to his apartment, he's confronted with some consequences, copyright Alan Emily Middleton, 2014 All Rights Observed, by Inspector Jordan, who tells Kyle to keep away from his girl. The following morning, we see Mulrooney and the subway workers confront the bosses about unfair wages, which leads to a riot between the workers and the police. But luckily, Green Lantern flies by to break up the mob and deliver a message to Tweed and Tammany that he is on the side of justice. And speaking of breaking up, that's just what Carol Ferris does to Hal Jordan as he tells her of their arranged wedding plans come later this year. The story shifts again to Alan and the Bowery Greens roughing up Carson at the graphic and setting the newspaper office on fire, then heading out to the pub for some drinks. There, Alan encounters a veteran from the old country who tells the tale of leprechauns who forged a ring from an Irish king with a piece of the Plarney Stone. He even shows Alan a trinket that should work the same way the ring does if it comes in touch with the magical lantern. Getting an idea, Alan murders the old man and pays a visit to young Jimmy Mulrooney to have him set up a meeting with Kyle Rayner. After finding the body, Inspector Jordan confronts Scott atop a building near the subway dig where he was to meet him to pay for his services, asking if he had anything to do with the murder. Alan feigns innocence and says he has set up a trap to get rid of the Green Lantern once and for all. Unfortunately, the trap was to set off some dynamite in, in the subway while Green Lantern was meeting down there with Carol Ferris. Wanting to stop the murder of his betrothed, Jordan pulls a gun on Scott, but one of the Bowery goons sneaks up behind him and knocks him over the head, pushing him off the building onto a fire escape. Struggling to save his fiancée, Jordan runs for the pit as Alan pushes the plunger, setting off a massive explosion. Fortunately, Kyle was able to shield himself from Carol from the blast, but Hal wasn't so lucky as he's badly wounded. And as the smoke clears, Alan Scott hears the conversation between Carol and the Green Lantern, and now that he knows that Rainer and the Lantern are one and same, his job of getting rid of them just became a bit easier. Okay, like most prestige stories, this was a bit longer than usual. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. It's, as I said, a peculiar book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm assuming it has a lot to do with actual New York history from the late mm-hmm. 1800s. Uh, the inclusions of Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall and the political machinations going on there are really interesting. But I don't know what... I don't know what Chaikin and Rogers and Tishman are trying to get across. Are they trying to do a historical piece with just putting Green Lantern in it? If so, that's interesting. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how how related um, Chaikin is to to the history of New York from around this time, or whether this was just an interesting idea to have a golden age story of Green Lantern. You know, I I really don't have any specific notes for it. I you know what what did you think of it, Thomas? I I, I well, I thought it was peculiar. It is fairly accurate. The the political thing aspects is very accurate to that time frame, from what I understand. Um, I think that I mean this is at, at towards the end of uh, Marshall Rogers' life, and I think that 
his work kind of suffers a little bit, but I also wonder if he was trying to emulate the style of graphic art at that time, hmm. which might explain some of the sparseness at places. Yeah, there there are some places where it's it's very simple. Mm-hmm. I think the character designs are are nice. That there's a lot of distinction between the characters. I think uh, every once in a while, I, I like the design that he gets. He's obviously he's obviously got a good grasp on that sort of late late 1800s feels. He's obviously yeah. maybe photo taken photo references of some of the buildings and some of the... Well, I mean, you see a couple of uses of photo references mm-hmm. throughout the book. Uh, I mean, even on the cover where you've got the photo uh, a photo reference as the background. Yeah. Um, I don't know why he put... Why Chaikin put in all these different, kind of like jumbled up all the different errors of Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. You know, where you've got like Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner and Alan Scott, and there's Carol Ferris, and here, you know, all this, all this stuff kind of smushed together in a big old Green Lantern stew. Yeah, it does make it kind of, it made it for me kind of difficult to synopsize because the the story is very cinematic or the book is very mm-hmm. cinematic it cuts from scene to scene there's only a couple of pages where you're dealing with one character then you're dealing with the the Tammany bosses and Boss Tweed then you come back to Ed uh, Ed Ferris and dealing with his machinations then you move to Alan Scott in the prison so it's it's all over the place and it was difficult for me to kind of give a synopsis without saying, and then that happened, and then that happened. But, uh, you know, reading it... Well, I mean, this is the second part of a three-parter, yeah. so it's a lot of it is hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. You know, it's... You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, I guess, I guess again, photo-referencing, I'm looking on page 10 as we're talking about the, uh, the uh, bosses uh, having the poker game. Mm-hmm. Rogers does a good job at distinguishing them, and I'm I'm wondering if those are specifically photo referenced from specific characters in the Boss Tweed organization. Mm-hmm. I've got to imagine they are, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, like I said, I don't really have much to say about it. Aside, it was relatively enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's it. now. Um, you mentioned this being the end of Marshall Rogers, you know, kind of at his run. Do, do you think this is this art is indicative of Marshall Rogers stuff, or is it a is it a departure from it? The, the most of Rogers' stuff, I mean, if you've looked at his stuff from like the the seventies with the Batman, or his brief run on Mister Miracle in the sometime in the nineties, it's much more uh, angular and much more detailed. This is just very, even though there there are some of like the the double page spread, is very recognizably Rogers. There are other areas where it just doesn't look quite like him. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the some of the stuff like I'm looking at page eleven right now. Some of there's like a a, a more of like a simplistic nature to some of the facial expressions. Yeah. It doesn't seem quite his. I'm I'm wondering if it's let's see who is the anchor here. If it was uh Bob Lappin? Well Lappin was the letter uh John okay. Sebolero. You know, I have yeah. no idea you know what he's done inking wise. Maybe him inking Marshall Rogers just took away some of that mm. some of the like okay, um, page thirteen, the the printing press. Mm-hmm. That's very recognizably uh, Rogers' construct. And then you go down to the page where you've got basically a couple of lines in a in a negative space. I don't know. It's it's. I don't think it's it's one of his best work. But then, like I said, it was towards the end of his life. Yeah. He well, was he was sick at this time, uh, and I will say thank goodness that 
even though this is later in Chaikin's cycle, he avoids almost entirely his usual obsession with uh, deviant sexuality and grotesque and grotesque violence. That that's good because you know the the only bit of sexuality that you have in the book is uh, around page sixteen where yeah the new new yeah, Carol. The nude Carol and Carol gets all sort of you know uh, what's her name from from Titanic yeah. in her oh, panties oh, and all that Kate, yeah, Kate Winslet Kate yeah. Winslet yeah so uh, it's yeah and for being a middle chapter of a book or of a trio of books it's Okay, but I don't think it's going to be one of the more memorable, one of the more memorable prestige format books that I've read. So, yeah, going out on kind of a down note there. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, this has been a pretty grim episode. Yeah, that's true. But you know, at at least, at least we got a really, despite the subject matter of the first issue, at least the first issue was a compelling and interesting. And it's hard. It's it's not right to say a fun to read issue because that's not true. But it was an engaging issue to read, and I'm glad that I got to cover it with you, Tom. Mm-hmm. Well, Thomas, since we're finishing up, do you want to go ahead and let people know what you're doing on the internet now and what's going on in in your uh, publishing life? Um, better in the dark might be coming back soon. That's great to hear. Uh, Derek and I are talking about what we're going to be doing soon once I get myself settled in my new place because I am moving. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Well, we had a story, a new Dreamcatcher story appeared in the Christmas annual for Pulpworks a short while ago. You could still buy it if you wanted, and as long as you ignore that it was a Christmas annual, and but um. And I've got Dreamcatcher stories coming up in a couple other books. And the next full book in the Shadow Legion um, series, The Shape Fears to Come, will hopefully be coming out sometime this year. Still still working on sort of, you know, legal back issue or back backdoor type stuff, trying to get things fixed. Well, we're waiting that. for the illustrations. Okay. That, that's, that's what's uh, holding it up right now. And there's another project that's coming out that I'm not allowed to talk about, but hopefully soon I'll be able to say something. But it's really cool, and the characters I created for it might be the cover-featured characters. So Ooh, cool. So I get to see these guys. On the, I, I can tell you about it off off mic. All right. Then. But, um, but yeah, so it's it's coming. But hopefully, um, like I said, hopefully there'll be some new Better in the Dark. I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I've missed better in the dark. Yeah, like I said, you and Derek, when you get together, you know, you have great conversations regardless of what you're talking about. And I'm, I'm looking forward to you guys getting backed in, uh, but I, I know you're going through a lot with moving yeah. and everything, Thomas, but you know, it's, it's just great to get to talk with you and it's great to hear you on the air. So uh, I, again, I really appreciate you coming on. And we got to we got to do a couple of mystery science to your three K references. <laughs> oh yes, slab hard G's. <laughs> what beef Mc, beef McGut gristle or something? I yes, like that. <laughs> slab squat thrust. All right, we're all okay. right. We're done. We can go <laughs> all gonna... with this. Thanks everyone for downloading, and listening, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, have a good week, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. 
The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scan the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well. And now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern. The opening music for today's show was Jewel and her song Pieces of You off the album of the same name. If you'd like to buy this album, buy this song, or buy this mp3, as always, the best place to go to is tutorfreaks.com. Because at tutorfreaks.com, there's a banner in the upper left-hand corner that leads you to amazon.com. When you click on the banner and go to Amazon.com, any purchase you make at Amazon.com, whether it be CDs, DVDs, MP3 downloads, TVs, game systems, games, whatever. Anything that you buy when you, after you click the Amazon.com banner at tutorfreaks.com delivers a small portion of your purchase price back to the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it really does help the Two True Freaks out. So anytime you're thinking about picking up music, games, movies, and like I said, whatever, please use the link at TutrueFreaks.com. I was so disappointed. I would have come on with you guys for uh, Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell. See, that was weird because I enjoyed it. I thought Mm -hmm. it was an interesting movie. I liked it a heck of a lot better than... Eight, which I thought was mm-hmm. probably one of the worst of the series. Jason takes a sea cruise. Yeah, Jason's Jason takes Manhattan for like five minutes and then moves <laughs> to Montreal or Ontario. Yeah. yeah, that was that was bad. But we uh, we ha- it's just so bug insane. Mm-hmm. And I love the, the the Stephen Williams character. Oh, the the the, the sort hunter. of Bruce the Bruce Campbell uh, analog, the black yeah. Bruce Campbell. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna break your fingers <laughs> for every answer you want. That was just I didn't get that at all. But it was yes, it was bad <laughs> insane. I mean, that's what I loved about it. I just it just was two people who just were trying to do something their own way and just went nuts with it. No, we mm-hmm. haven't released it yet. We we recorded Jason X. So, <laughs> so Jason is in space. space with David Cronenberg. Oh yeah, with a yeah, little <laughs> cameo by Cronenberg. That was kind of nice. But uh, that one, I think, went more positive. You know, as wonky as some of the effects were, mm-hmm. uh, that one felt more like a f- typical Friday the Thirteenth movie, and it had some god ridiculous friggin kills the the chick getting her face smash and the yes. pool of uh, liquid nitrogen that was even even though that probably can't happen it was an interesting visual well every three months or so they put out like four or five pilots and ask people to vote on which ones they want to see more of hmm and sometimes they come out and sometimes they don't. Like, uh, there was a, a Chris Carter pilot that was awful. Really? I mean, truly, truly awful. And, of course, all the X-Files heads came out and said, yeah, we want to see more of this, and we never saw it again, which is good. I'm almost caught up on Flash. I caught up on... I still need to catch up on Constantine. Right. But, so, uh, so you haven't seen the backdoor pilot yet? No, what's that? Oh, for, well, no, the the, the two-part uh, Firestorm I saw the first one. Did. I saw the Firestorm okay. one, and I didn't see the one that they aired last night. Okay, so you haven't seen... Basically, the two of them act as a kind of backdoor pilot. For Firestorm? For Firestorm, yeah. For yeah. Firestorm, the series, which I'm hoping they get. That'd be cool. Yeah, you know, and I, I've heard people, you know, talking that maybe WB doesn't want to do any more superhero shows... You know, because they don't want to be like known as the superhero network. But if it's working for them, go with it. I mean, they're coming yeah. out with iZombie. 
later. Mm-hmm. Rob Thomas is back on network television. Is he, is he behind that? Yeah. Are you looking forward to that? Yes, I am because okay. it's Rob Thomas. There you go. Well, it, it looks interesting. Uh, you know, I've never read the I Zombie book, but it it looks like it'd be an interesting show. I'll give it a shot. I'll put it at least put the couple of first first episodes on the DVR and see what it see if it catches mm-hmm. me. Because I was, like I said, I was unsure of how Constantine would be, and I had just been really impressed with how good that show has been. Yeah, I'm hoping they that. Sci-fi picks it up because it's not going to be picked up by NBC. Yeah, well, and Sci-fi is just a subsidiary. It's like Sci-Fi and USA and yeah. uh, NBC share a lot of shows, mm-hmm. so that wouldn't upset me if that if that happened. But I am appreciative of the fact that they have been take, taking the source material. They've mm-hmm. been adapting the source material a lot. Yeah, the whole thing with Zed that. Um, that's directly from like the, the Jamie Delano uh, mm. era. Yeah, and I, I know last time we talked, you said that uh, that uh, third or fourth episode with the hunger was, demon, yeah, was pretty much directly swiped from that as well. So from the first from the first storyline, and and they've been adding in characters. They've had the Spectre in there. They've had Felix mm-hmm. Faust. Uh, I, I've heard. See, you know, I've got to catch up. I'm, I've missed a couple of episodes, so I've <clears> got to catch up. I haven't seen the Felix Faust episode. I saw the Spectre episode. Yeah, the the Felix Faust episode. They kind of explain what's going on with Chaz and why he's mm-hmm. sort of immortal or can keep coming back right. to life. And I don't know whether. And again, since I haven't read the comics, I don't know whether it's related to the comics. But it was a good explanation, regardless, in the show mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, that's the one thing that that's definitely not part of the comics. Chaz is just Chaz. Okay, he's not like immortal or whatever. No. Okay. 